Greetings, friends. It is the weekend of Sunday, October the 30th, and I hope that you're doing well. You know, we're learning that the gospel is the only answer to the ultimate solution to all the problems of society. In this world that we are in, many many today are wondering if, if we've not already maybe gone too far, if even the widespread demonstration of Christian love and the proclamation of the truth of God is too late, so to speak, to reverse the tide. Also, public morality in our days seems to have fallen to an incredible low. There may be some truth to that statement that I heard this week, that we're watching a nation die. I don't, I don't know. But I wish to point out that in this present series that we've been going through, that the, that the city of Corinth in Paul's day had very similar problems to our own. It too was, was infested was with what Paul calls strongholds of evil, which enslaved the populace, the people there. They, they were very much the same strongholds that we see today. There was racial tension, sexual immorality, widespread and very powerfully entrenched um, politics in the city of Corinth. And, they, and there were difficulties between relatives and families. There was social feuding, political tyranny abundant under the heel of the Roman Empire. But Paul had come to that city and was attacking those problems. He was coming to declare to the citizens of Corinth the solution to the problems that were gripping them as individuals and as a society. And we must approach our present look at this gospel in the same light. You see, Paul was attacking those problems with the weapons of truth, love, righteousness, and faith prayer, those two things that belong so intimately together, really all four of them, all five of them, if you will. In other words, he was preaching the gospel, and he was demonstrating the gospel, and he was highly successful. Already a colony of health had been planted in that Corinthian community, which we call the church at Corinth. And though there were still great problems, and Paul was still attacking those strongholds that remained entrenched, but he's reminding us again and again throughout these letters that he's attacking them not with the weapons of the world, as he says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, the passage that we have been looking at. For the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. He goes on to declare, we destroy arguments and every proud obstacle to the knowledge of God, and we take very every thought captive to obey Christ. We've already seen that in a sense, the gospel is unique. It is the only thing of its kind. It has no rival. We stress that because we find it emphasized throughout all of scripture. When we're talking about the truth as it is in Jesus, Ephesians 4, 21, we are introducing a radically new element into any human situation. And that radical element alone has the ability to correct the wrong that is present. But the gospel is not only unique, it works uniquely. That is, when what we saw last week, it does not attack the arguments and the reasonings of humanity directly. It does not, it's not engaged in just simply counter-argument. In other words, it tries to avoid, if at all possible, the eyeball-to-eyeball encounter. But it works by capturing the heart of the arguer. It reaches the person behind the argument. It skirts their defenses and comes at them from unexpected directions. And so it delivers people who are involved in really deep and desperate problems. We have to understand that the problems of our day 
do not exist apart from people. They are caused by people. These people act the way they do because they are victims of ideas which they believe to be right or wrong, as the case may be, and we cannot unravel the knots that that make up the problems without somehow reaching the people involved. If the people change, then the problem is solved. So it's very true that the gospel deals directly with these problems of social concern. It's it's this elusive attack, this roundabout approach, which captures the person despite the fact that they're constantly building a defense by arguments and reasons. That's so uniquely characteristic of the good news of Jesus. Jesus was referring to this when he said to his disciples, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves, Matthew 10, 16. That is the Christian approach. This is exemplified by Paul in this letter when he says to these Corinthians, being crafty, I, I caught you with guile, 2 Corinthians twelve sixteen. I came at you in a way that you didn't expect. I captured you by craftiness and a very remarkable kind of craftiness. We're trying to discover how this works in our own situation. And we've already, we've already seen one way in which it does. First, as we saw last week, the gospel speaks to the vacuums in humanity's spirit, which are not built up and protected by the reasonings by which we try to defend our pride. The gospel gets behind that, and it speaks to those empty places in the, in the human heart and humanity's spirit, those vacuums. The gospel is, is a thoroughly supernatural message. In other words, it, it talks about things that are not subject to, to science or the discoveries of rational approaches. It speaks of relationships between God, holy God, and mankind, the, the deep things of humans' spirits. Since humanity is, is a being created by God to have this kind of relationship, the gospel makes its silent appeal to deep-seated hungers of our heart. And it does so despite the arguments that we may have devised to protect ourselves. That is why when the gospel is spoken in power, it, it raises certain fears within an individual and it awakens deep longings within us. There's a verse in Ecclesiastes that's marvelously significant in, in this sort of connection. It says that God has made everything beautiful in its time, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And we always agree with that. But then it goes on to say, also, he has put eternity into man's mind. That's verse 3.11, the second part. We can never forget that. We're created to be an eternal being, and and we know it. Despite the superficiality of our lives, there are cries from the very depths of our heart to which the gospel speaks. Furthermore, the gospel appeals to any man or woman by offering to deal with those dirty residues, that leftover residue of sin in our life. We only have to look around us or maybe more accurately, within us to realize that sinful humanity is always plagued by the the byproducts of our own sin. What, What are some of those byproducts of our own sin? Well, guilt is one. Guilt always accompanies sin. It cannot help but do so. It's part of the inevitable law of consequences around which life seems to be built, and we can't escape it. There's no way we can escape no matter how hard we try. But the gospel deals with that. Fear is another one of those residues, those dirty residue of sin, the fear and anxiety that troubles, the pressure of worry that that beats away and in the back of the head all day long, draining away uh, vitality, leading us on a nervous wreck. 
uh, or to become a nervous wreck. In many cases, this is a result of ignorant evil that's allowed to be present in the heart. But the gospel deals with that. Hostility is another residue of sin that grips us in our sinful condition. We, we can't escape it no matter how much we try to like people. There are some people that just simply grate on us. They irritate us and we find ourselves hostile against them and, and we can't subdue it in and of ourselves. A, a fourth residue is confusion, which is uh, widely surrounds us. It's the inability to make a decision, the inability to determine what's right and wrong, what leads up and what leads down. It, it's, it's so apparent. We see it everywhere. And here's where the gospel comes with great power and makes its appeal to the person who finds themselves being gripped by these things. It speaks to them by revealing that there is a way out. We may not believe it at first, but still it makes this subtle appeal to our heart. These, these results of evil in human life create bondage. They produce a sense of helplessness, of despair, you know, our present situation in the world just gives testimony to that. We, we know that behind the bright facades of success and confidence, which many people put up, that there are deep, deep pools of gross, dark despair. But the gospel offers power, power to break these chains, and that's the glory of it. The story of Jesus is one demonstration after another of his authority to free people from the chains that, that, that bound them. We read the gospel records again, and, and we find that, that this is the thing that attracted people to him, that drew multitudes out after him, this awareness of his authority to set men and women free. This is the great proclamation that we make. Here is the one who entered into the stream of humanity and who can do something about these desperate things that grip and hold us in, 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 in inescapable bondage. He breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the phallus clean. His blood availed for me. People feel drawn to Jesus because of this, this despite themselves. That's the power of the gospel. It destroys arguments by reaching the person behind the argument. Second, it destroys arguments and humbles pride because it is always accompanied by acts of true love. You see, here again is that secret of the power of the gospel. True acts of love always involve real interest and time spent beyond the call of duty on the part of the one who is desiring to help. Some of us were, were commenting this week on, uh, I was talking with some folks on, we're talking about Jesus's words where he says, greater love has no man than this, that the man laid down his life for his friends. That's John 15, 13. It's po- it was pointed out that laying down your life does not always mean dying, um, but it means giving your, of yourself. It, it means taking the time, the interest, the money, whatever else it may take to reach someone personally. That's laying down your life. That's the mark of true love. It's not merely passing out a tract or giving you know, a testimony. Um, I'm not saying that those things are wrong, but that it's not merely that. And I think that's been one of the problems with the evangelical church. We've felt this whole matter that of proclaiming of the gospel is, has been to declare certain truths, to declare certain statements, either in printed or verbal form. And having done that, then we've preached the gospel. But no, we, we do not find that in scriptures. It's laying down your lives along with pro- proclamation. It's the involvement of self. It's, 
It's the act of sharing love that drives the message home and makes the truth viable. Acts of love demand involvement. And thirdly, the gospel destroys arguments and humbles pride by presenting the indisputable record of changed lives. It, it produces righteousness in people, undeniably. Here where the weapons of righteousness come in, on the right hand and on the left hand, 2 Corinthians 6, 7, the, the gospel has demonstrated that it works, that it changes people. That record has power to break down arguments and to humble pride. There are, there are a thousand illustrations of this that can be given right out of, right out of us seated here today. There, there are people who are here this morning because they saw in their spouse a completely changed person when they came to know Jesus Christ. The scripture uses this beautiful phrase to describe consistent, the consistent life of a believer, the beauty of holiness. That's First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, Psalms. There is no beauty like it. That marvelous charm in a life that is right, that's balanced, that's wholesome, that's dedicated, that's committed to the Son of God. The beauty of holiness. There's nothing else like it. It's powerfully compelling to unbelievers. Dr. H.A. Ironside was a captain of the Salvation Army in San Francisco, and frequently the Salvation Army would march down Market Street and hold open-air meetings down by the ferry building. And at one of these meetings, young Ironside was challenged by an atheist as to the truth and power of the gospel of the Christian story. He spoke very eloquently, very powerfully, answering the claims of the gospel in, a, in an intellectual way. But Harry Ironside stopped him by proposing a challenge. He said, look, you say that our message is not the truth and that we're teaching and what we're teaching people is a lie, sort of tricking them and, and bringing them into this religious delusion. So, so now I'd like to propose something to you. Next week, let's meet here again on this spot. And you bring with you an individual who has known evil in, in some open, very flagrant form, but who has been changed by your message of atheism. Bring that person with you. And let that person bring a testimony to the change that has come by believing the teachings of atheism. For every one you bring, I'll bring a hundred with me who have been set free by the, by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The man said, I'm sorry, I can't meet you on those terms. You see, surely that is the power of the gospel. Because we won't open eyes to the power of, of, of a Christian in today's society. We want to encourage the wider expression of, of the Christian faith and bolder, more confident approaches to others around us on these matters. I'm trying to encourage us to see that this good news of Jesus is the only hope for society. It always has been, and it always will be. And surely we need to declare this in a world that has gone wrong at, at its very base. And I, I want to reserve for a full, the, this full message the last method by which the gospel destroys arguments and humbles pride. It's this method of faith and prayer. But let me close now by reminding us of the stirring words of Paul to the Christians who lived in the capital of the Roman Empire, the center of the world in their day. In the 13th chapter of Romans, he closes with these words. The night is nearly over. The day has almost dawned. Let us therefore fling away the things that men do in the dark. Let us 
arm ourselves for the fight of the day. Let us live cleanly as in the daylight, not not in the delights of getting drunk or playing with sex, nor yet in quarreling or jealousies. Let us be Christ's men and women from head to foot and give no chances to the flesh to have its fling. It's Romans 13, 12 through 14. Amen. And God bless.